Hello, and welcome to the Cornerstone High School Ministry Podcast. This message, given by Kyle Baker, is the not-so-triumphant entry, and is a part of our Road to Resurrection series leading up to Easter. So, we are on the, our Walking Dead series, and uh, called the Road to Resurrection, and we're leading up to the next two weekends, which are what? Do you guys know what they are? Palm Sunday is this weekend, or Palm Weekend here, and then what's the next one after that? Easter. So you guys, good job. And so we're leading up into that. So we're not exactly totally into that story yet. I'm going to kind of lead up to what it talks about. And then the next couple Sundays we'll be in the main service and we'll get to hear what they have to say about it. It'll be a great production. Spoiler alert, Colton is playing Jesus, possibly dead or alive donkey. (laughs) If you ride a dead donkey, (laughs) will it be resurrected? That's what I want to know. If there is a dead donkey being ridden and it and it gets resurrected, dude, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Fear the beard. I'm fearing the dead donkey because donkeys probably don't smell good when they're alive and when they're dead. That's terrible. <clears throat> well, with all this said, let me pray for us one more time. And if you have your Bibles, we'll take about a second. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for just the fun times we get to have uh, experiencing your word and in community, Lord, is that... Uh, you say wherever two gathered, two or more gathered, that we're blessed. And Lord, I know because you've created all things and, and all things that are good have come from you is that, you know, we enjoy humor and we enjoy hanging out. We enjoy your scripture uh, and we enjoy growing uh, in our belief in you and in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you be here today and we just ask more of you. Holy Spirit, you come down and you put yourself powerfully upon us as we hear your word and have it change and hurt our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, and it's leading up to Jesus going into what would be called Palm Sunday for here. And basically is what is happening is up to this time, we know a couple things. In the Gospel of Luke, it only has kind of one year of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of John, we find out that Jesus has about two and a half, somewhere around two and a half to three. He goes to Jerusalem a total of three times, and in this one is when he finally kind of culminates his ministry it's, he's getting near the end, and you know what happens at the end of that story. And so he's getting near the end of it, and he has done a lot of miraculous things up to this point, but he is getting to the point where his disciples are starting to see more of what he's going to do. They don't necessarily understand everything, as Scripture will show us, but they're basically saying that, hey, we're getting to the point where something amazing is going to happen. The tension is growing, and they can see it. And during this time, right before this, is they're going to be celebrating Passover. Do you guys know what that is? It, it basically celebrates when the Jews got out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus. Moses led them out of that, and they celebrated the Passover meal, which is where the angel of the Lord passed over them, their houses that had blood on the doorways, and their firstborn was not killed because of that. And so the Passover meal is coming up, and Jesus chooses that time to come into Jerusalem. And he is going to institute his new covenant, which we're going to learn about in a couple weeks. But prior to all that, there are three or four stories that don't seem to have anything to do with this Palm Sunday. But reading them over and over again, it seems like they really do. And we're going to talk about those today. Some of them I'm going to read entirely, and some of them I'm just going to give you snippets of it and just kind of help you through this. So if you have a Bible or a phone, that totally counts. So you're totally still holy if you have your Bible on your phone. In fact, some may say holier because you carry it with you everywhere. So just saying. So, <clears throat> some people are being like, yes, I knew it. 
So up to this point, Jesus has talked about the kingdom of God a couple little times. And if you just read kind of your headings, if your Bible has headings in before there, you see back in chapter 18, verse about 15, Jesus talks about little children of Jesus. He talks about the rich and the kingdom of God. And very much we want to pay attention to this kingdom language because I believe this is what Jesus is getting at. And one phrase I want you guys to remember, every king has a kingdom and every kingdom has people. And this is, I think, what Jesus is getting at with these stories that I'm about to read you. So, the rich and the kingdom of God, Jesus predicts his death a third time, if you can see that as one of your heading. Jesus is very adamant, especially in the Gospel of Luke, about saying, I'm giving this information, I'm going to go suffer and die. And it's always funny because some of the disciples are like, dude, he just died. And Jesus is probably like, I've been telling you like three times, at least in this book alone, that I was going to go die, wake up. And so what happens is, you get to chapter 19, and this is what happens. There's a guy named Zacchaeus, and let me just read part of the story for you. So Jesus entered Jericho, which is not far down the road, on its way to Jerusalem, and a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy, so he's a rich dude. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, look at that, short people even in the Bible, what's up? Okay, they make fun of midges and dwarves. I don't know if I like this. <clears throat> but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Poor short people. My wife is like 5'2", and sometimes when we're walking and she goes behind a fire hydrant, I'm like, where are you? And she's like, oh, that's mean. And then I'm like, babe, stop getting so short with me. And she's like, shut up, that's not funny. <laughs> and then we're on our way to Starbucks, and she doesn't have enough change. I was like, looks like you're a little short. She's like, oh, you are done, sir. <laughs> So I love short people jokes, because my poor wife, like, sometimes she's like, can you get that for me? I was like, I'll throw you up there like a spider monkey, and then you can, like, climb down. It's awesome. Poor short people. But with all that said, they're already talking about short people in the Bible, so I feel like short jokes are validated by Holy Scripture. I mean, it's in here. So, <clears throat> so when Jesus reached the spot, he looked, he looked up and said to him, the spot where Zacchaeus was in the tree, and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Jesus just invites himself to stay at his house. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, Zacchaeus did. <clears throat> All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner, that Jesus dude, always hanging out with sinners. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So let's stop here real quick. So, so Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. <clears throat> who likes tax people? Yeah, I mean, most of you are pretty young. You don't do your own taxes. Most of you don't even pay taxes because you don't have jobs. But when you get older, like, you have to pay taxes to the government. It's a good thing, but no one likes just giving their money away. And back then, a tax collector actually extorted money from people, sometimes illegally. So their, their job was to collect taxes in order to pay for the roads and other stuff like that. And usually tax collectors worked for who, do you think? Back then, what's that big power over them all? The Rome. They, a lot of times they worked for the Romans. And so they were encouraged. The more you could collect out of someone, the more you got yourself. And so tax collectors often extorted money out of people because there, there wasn't always like a hard and fast, hey, you have to give, you know, 100 denarii here or one minus here or whatever. So they often extorted more money than they should. So they were very much hated. And they were, they were labeled as sinners because what they were doing was, quite frankly, sinful. They were cheating people out of their stuff. And so Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, and if we put sinner for tax collector, he's a chief sinner. So he's like a chief of sinners. 
Man, that's a sweet tribe. And so what basically is happening is Jesus is now inviting himself to this man's place. I love that the Bible throws in that detail that he's short. Like, what is that there for? Like, what does that make a difference? Like, short people sin more than taller people? He was like, that dude's seven feet tall. He's righteous. <laughs> you know? It's like, he's a midget. You Get away from me, you Satanistic guy. <clears throat> so short is actually interesting because we're going to be talking about kingdom language here in a second. When a king came into town, you did your best to see who he was. You wanted to see if the stories were true about him. Was he big and handsome and mighty and strong? Or was he Napoleon in short? So you wanted to see what he was like. And being of short stature, it didn't allow him to do that. He couldn't see over the people, much like my wife can't see over a fire hydrant. It's very difficult. Okay? Hopefully she doesn't listen to this sermon. <laughs> Don't tell her to. <clears throat> I'll know. And so what happens is you want to see the king when he comes into town. You know, a king's a big deal. He doesn't always come into town. Usually doesn't come to your house. And so the people are kind of lining up, and word of Jesus has spread far and wide of the miracles he has done, the walking on water, the raising people from the dead, the healing of miraculous uh, people, or the miraculous healing of people, the exercising of demons. And no, that does not mean you put a demon on a treadmill and make him sweat. It actually makes you get him out of someone, just in case you're curious about that. So Jesus' name far and wide has been heard. And Zacchaeus wants to see what this dude's about. And I think the shortness of his stature kind of makes him do something bold. He doesn't just stand with the crowd. He climbs up a tree. And if you're an older gentleman and you're kind of rich, do you climb trees? No. You really don't. You pay someone to climb the tree for you, then you ask them how that was. You know, how was it? Well, it hurts. All right, here's 10 bucks. You know, you pay someone else to do your stuff. So this guy was probably an older dude. He climbs a tree to see Jesus. That's kind of how desperate he is. He's willing to do whatever it takes to see Jesus, which is great. And then Jesus invites himself to his home and says, I want to come meet with you. As a tax collector, they knew they weren't well-liked. And so having a king like Jesus come to your house and want to come to your house, you know, he must have just been beside himself. Like, Jesus, I just climbed a tree to see you, and you want to come eat at my house? This is awesome. I'm a little short, so can you help me down? <laughs> you know, something like that. And so he eats at his house. The people around him, the Jewish uh, Pharisees, notice that, and they're just like, dude, the king's going to eat at a bad person's house, a sinner's house. And I love this play, and again, I think shortness comes into play again here, is that morally, theologically, and um, just basically common sense-wise, the people that were short were the Pharisees, not the short tax collector. They were short on grace, they were short on appearances, and they were short on love, and they were short on the realization that God was the true king. And Zacchaeus, a person who was short in stature, someone who literally couldn't see over people, who had to climb a tree to see actually what Jesus was about, he had the best viewpoint. Metaphorically speaking, the Pharisees were the ones that were supposed to be in the trees. They were supposed to be the ones that had a good viewpoint of who Jesus was. They saw things that other people didn't. But yet they were short in compassion, mercy, grace, all of the things that Zacchaeus is, is going to have here in a minute. And so I love that, even though they include that detail of shortness, it's kind of almost metaphoric in the sense. He had a hard time seeing Jesus, so he did what he could to see him, where the Pharisees the whole time 
should have had that viewpoint from a tree. They should have been like, yep, we've been reading our scripture. We know exactly what to expect. We can see you from afar, Jesus. The things you're doing make sense. We're going to come down from this tree and join you. And the Pharisees, they just they don't want any part of that. They want to stay up in whatever tree they're in. They don't want to be a part of it. And so it goes on, and it says, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of Abraham came and, to save and seek what was lost. So Jesus says that salvation came to Zacchaeus and his entire household. Now we don't know exactly how long he was there. It's probably a day. He probably just stayed the night and had dinner. But Zacchaeus was changed, being that close to Jesus. He was changed. Every king has a kingdom, and every kingdom has people. And the people of God change when they're close to him. So we're talking about kingdom language here. The next thing has happened is right after this, this is what it says. While they were listening to this, this story, this, uh, this, this thing that just happened between him and Zacchaeus, they said, he went on to tell them a parable, a story, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Kingdom of God. Again, we're talking about kingdom stuff. Every king has a kingdom. Every kingdom has people. And he's already told us what one of the people looks like in the kingdom of God. It's a sinner. Jesus is a different kind of king. The people that populate his kingdom are sinners, that he comes and restores. So that's the first story about that. The second story is a parable. It's not something that really happens. It's something that Jesus allows us to hear to explain what he's trying to get across. And this is what he says. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. A minus was about three months' wages, the Bible says. So it was a pretty good amount of sum. So to each 10 of his servants, he gave one minus. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. And he said, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So the king is going on a journey. He's not yet king, but he's going to become king. You can see kind of the metaphor of what's going on right here already. But his subjects hated him, not his servants. His subjects, the citizens of his country, hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So it's kind of like this king is going to have an election. He's not yet a king. He's kind of running for election. And the people that are under his rule are saying, we don't want you as our king. But this guy puts money under the people that do like him, his servants. And he says, while I'm away trying to become a king, make sure you put my money to work while I'm away. So you got two people groups. His servants, who he has entrusted with money, and people underneath them who don't want to be their king. So those two people groups. <clears throat> but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. He was made king, however. So this dude becomes king. And returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Sweet. I give you like a buck. You make me ten bucks more. I like this. <clears throat> well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trusted worthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So he gives them something small, sees that the guy returns it, and puts him in charge of something far, far greater. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Well done. You take charge of five cities. Sweet, five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you know did not. So I'll explain that in a second. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words. 
you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I sow? Well, then why didn't you put my money in the bank? So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take this mine away from this man. Give it to the one who has ten. And they said, sir, he, that other guy already has ten. And he replied and said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken. And then he talks about the second people group. But those people of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's kind of a, Jesus, can you tell like a nicer parable? Like this is like lots of stuff's going on here. People just got killed in front of you, giving people charge of cities and stuff like that. It's a tough one. And I think Jesus here is also telling about what his kingdom is like. Every king has a kingdom, and every kingdom has people. And he's talking about what the people in his kingdom look like. So, let's pretend for a fact that Jesus is this king in this story, okay? He is going to become king, just like he's literally on the road right now to Jerusalem to be anointed as king. In this parable, Jesus is becoming king. He puts in charge people who serve him and love him and care about him. He gives them uh, responsibilities. They may not be financial. They may be, uh, I give you the responsibility to build my church. I give you the responsibility to take care of orphans and widows. And then he leaves. Okay? Someday when he comes back, he's going to want to know that the stuff that he put us in charge of, we weren't lazy about. That we actually did something with stuff he put us in charge of. And you want to be one of these first nine servants. Is that those people who did something with what God gave them, he blessed them all the more. And the one servant who sat on what God gave him, he wasn't punished exactly, but what he had, God took from him. He said, look, I've entrusted you with something special to me, and you wasted your time. I've come back and you've done nothing with it. What you at least could have done is put it in the bank. You said, at least I would have gained interest there, even if it was a small bit. You could have at least put some effort into it. So he's talking about the servants, the people of his kingdom who love him. He expects us to do good things with the good he's given him. And then there's that second people group. There are people who do not want Jesus as king. And we can tell that just from this before this story. The Pharisees, a lot of them, don't recognize Jesus as their king. They, in fact, are trying to kill him. We know that because scripture tells us that. There are a majority of people who do not like what Jesus has to say because he challenges their life, their social order, and he challenges their everyday the way of living. And so they don't want him as their king either. So Jesus has got a lot of enemies. And before we just think that Jesus is going to have them killed right in front of them, there are going to be consequences someday when Jesus fulfills his kingdom. There are going to be those that are in Jesus' kingdom, and there are going to be those that are outside. And the ones that are outside who have refused to accept Jesus, he tells us there's going to be a punishment for them, and we'll get to that in a minute. So every king has a kingdom, and every kingdom has a people. So Jesus is again trying to tell us what the people in his kingdom will look like. Zacchaeus is a sinner, but he is redeemed. Jesus loves him, and salvation has come to that dude. The people in this parable have been given things. We are going to be given things as well. And Jesus expects us to do something with them, the second thing. And then we get to the final portion of our story. And that's where Jesus is finally getting to Jerusalem. 
This is what it said. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jericho is on one of the roads to Jerusalem. It's kind of like a, almost a straight shot going uh, southwest uh, of Jerusalem. If you go southwest of Jericho, you hit Jerusalem. And he had seen this, and he's going up to Jerusalem, and as he was approaching Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead of him, saying, go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. So we're kind of having some fun with this in the office. It's just like, what if you just went up to anything, and you took it right off the shelf, and you're just like, what are you doing? Uh, the, the, Lord, the Lord needs it? <laughs> and you just make a face like, okay, just go. They're not going to do anything about it. This is scriptural. This is totally cool. You know, you go up there and you're like, Subway sandwich. The Lord needs this. You know, and you're done. And you're out. You know, part of this, you're just like, skateboard. The Lord needs this. You're just like, oh, gold watch. The Lord needs that. You know, totally. He blings it all up and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny that like he just says, the Lord needs this. So what we think is because Jesus has been around here before, He's probably been to this person's house. He probably knows who they are, and he probably has a relationship with them, and they know he's the Lord. And so probably maybe either someday he said, hey, I'm going to come back for this. Please save it for me. Or it could just be one of those miraculous things. Jesus just said, look, say these words. The guy will accept them. Bring it here. So he goes and gets a donkey. And so this is what he says afterwards. Uh, They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that he had seen. Blessed is the king, so we're starting to talk about king, who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So let's stop there real quick. Again, when a king comes into town, there are certain things you do to kind of welcome him. One, you don't scare them when you're sitting right behind them. That's really weird. I saw that. He's like, oh, where'd you come from? Um, <clears throat> one of the things you do is, especially when Roman generals would come back, they're not kings, but they were kind of as close as they had it, is that when they would come back from battle, there are certain things you do. People would gather outside. They would throw their equivalent of confetti, you know, flowers and stuff like that. They would put, like, either a red carpet on the grounds, or they would put the streets in such a way that it was, like, welcoming royalty into the place. And everyone was excited. And this is the scene for Jesus. He is being welcomed like, almost like a war hero, a person who is coming back from a victorious world war or is going into a place about to make war, and this is a symbol of being victorious. But the thing is, generals war, uh, rode war horses, can you imagine if a general came in on a donkey and you're like, ha-ha, and you're like, no, dude, you are on a donkey, okay, no, you know, Clydesdale, yes, donkey, uh-uh, no way, so it's not exactly something that they thought of as a, a war instrument, in fact, it's the quite opposite, Zechariah 9.9 talks about the donkey being that, that peaceful symbol, Jesus is riding in for peace, <laughs> I'm just kidding, so most places they would welcome either a king back from battle or they, they knew this king was going to conquer them. And so what would happen is, is that they would recognize this person as they came in or that they would do their best to go out and see him. And this is kind of what's happening here. So the people group at this time, we don't know exactly how they thought because it wasn't there. But there's a couple ways you can take this. 
they knew exactly who Jesus was. And they were welcoming him as the peaceful Messiah that he was supposed to be. Instead of a general marching into the city, either after battle, because he is victorious in a warlike form, or a general coming into the city saying, I have conquered you, Jesus is coming in in a peaceful way. His victory is different. He's a different kind of king. And so when he's coming in, the people, either they know exactly who Jesus is, which probably very few of them did. They didn't know what Jesus was about to do, even though he said it plainly. Or the other one is that they were, and the more believable one, a lot of them were tired of the Romans. They were the biggest powerhouse at the time, and they were tired of them bullying them around, telling them what to do, extorting taxes from them, telling them how they could live, where they could worship, what they couldn't do, and basically not having their own nation. So they wanted Jesus with all the power he, could ha- he had. They figured if Jesus can raise the dead and if he can miraculously heal people, he's got to be able to call down some angels on these Romans. He's got to be able to just snap his fingers and angels with wicked armor and awesome swords come down there and just wreak havoc on this Roman nation. That's kind of what they're celebrating. <clears throat> every king has a kingdom, and every kingdom has a people. And Jesus' people are a little conflicted right now. And he's going to talk to us about what they look like in just a second. But this is what's happening. And then there are palm branches there, as you'll see on Palm Sunday. And palm branches were also another symbol, sometimes of war or victory. In fact, some places, when they conquered a place, one of the first things they did, chop off all their palm branches. They gave them shade and sustenance and some other stuff. But it was a symbol of you are conquered. So palm branches, there's a lot of symbolism going on in here. And it's easy to miss unless you, you know, really pay attention. So there's a lot of symbolism going on. Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by riding in on a donkey from Zechariah 9.9. He's coming in a peaceful way. He is also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by saying he is going to go die. He conquers through death. Generals and stuff conquer through giving other people death. So that's a big difference here. And so this is what happens. The teachers, of the, the Pharisees in the crowd say, teachers, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, this is an awesome line, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If my people stop praising me, inanimate objects that have never spoken in their entire non-existence are going to all of a sudden start praising because they are waiting in anticipation for me to do what I'm going to do. And it's not ironic, but it's interesting because prior to this in Jesus' ministry, what does he tell people to say? Keep quiet. Every time he heals someone, he says, don't tell anybody about this. Every time he exercises a demon by putting them right up on that treadmill and running right after him, he says, don't, no, he didn't say that. He says, don't tell anybody about this. Keep quiet. One of the first miracles, I think actually the first miracle that Jesus does when he, be, when he has his, the, the, the wine, water turned into wine, he says, woman, it's not my time yet. And he says all these things because it is not the right time. In this story, his time. Jesus does not want to be hailed as the Messiah and stuff prior to this. He'll accept the title, but he's not parading around. Now he's parading around. It is time. Jesus is saying, it is time for me to be hailed as the rightful king. Now is the time for rejoicing. Now is the time for you to cry out. You've been waiting like two and a half years. Get it all out now. And the Pharisees have the audacity to tell his disciples to shut up. Ooh. 
And Jesus doesn't allow it. Not this time, Pharisees. I've been keeping quiet long enough. It is my time. And he even says, even if I do get my people to be quiet, you're going to hear all creation cry out for me. It's pretty impressive. And as he approached Jerusalem, and he saw the city, and he wept over it. We kind of forget this part about the Palm Sunday story. We're always just like enamored with the fact that when Jesus comes in, it's a celebratory time. We forget how dark this, this image is as well. And here's, what, here's why it's dark. He wept over it and said, if you had only, even you, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will, they will dash you into the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you could not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is sad. Every king has a kingdom. Every kingdom has a people. And God's people are the people he loves and cherishes and will have joy. The people that are not part of that kingdom, Jesus weeps over. Because he has given them everything he can to show them he is who he says he is, that he is their rightful king. And he is sorry because these Pharisees who are telling him to be quiet, they've missed it. The Pharisees who back then with Zacchaeus said, don't eat at that sinner's house, they missed it. The multitudes of crowds who have seen Jesus proclaim himself through miracles and through walking on water and through raising people and who have not accepted him, they missed it. And Jesus is sorry. He's not mad at them. He's sorry and his heart hurts. And this is the picture of the second portion of Palm Sunday. There is this triumphal entry where God of the universe is rightfully declared king, where the people of his kingdom cry out to him and they celebrate and he is basking in that. And then there's the second portion of it, the people who've missed it. He is not their king because they have not accepted him. They are not part of his kingdom. They're outside and they are not the people because they've rejected him. And it's a sad story because Jesus longs for them. One theologian has argued that the Pharisees were some of the people that Jesus was the closest to because he wanted so bad for them to be saved, and yet their hearts were so hard. And so he weeps over them because he's like, haven't I shown you enough over the past two and a half years of being peaceful, even when you wanted to kill me, of healing your sick and wounded, of exercising the demons that have been terrorizing your neighborhoods, of showing you mercy and compassion, of teaching you. Haven't I shown you enough that I am your king? And then in that second story, Jesus tells them exactly what kind of people group they are. They're not his servants. They're the people that say, I don't want him as our king. And those are the people that are killed in front of him. Not necessarily by God's hand, but by their own doing. Because when Jesus dies upon that cross, and then he rises again, and then he gives good things to people who are his servants, there will be people that will be left out. And he's sorry for that. And it sucks for them, because Jesus wants them to have that, badly. That's why he weeps. You don't hear Jesus weeping too many times in the Bible. This is a sorrowful day. Jesus' best day, one of his best days, I would say his resurrection is his best day. 
but one of his best days where everyone should be rejoicing. All the peoples of the earth should finally be like, we're coming to Jerusalem, which at this time of year is now filled with over two million people. And it can barely take them. Most of them not knowing who Jesus was or rejecting him. The day of celebration has become a day of defeat for so many people because they won't understand the cross. They sure as heck won't understand the resurrection afterwards. And so there is happy and glad tidings. Every king has a kingdom. Every kingdom has a people. And those people of that kingdom that are underneath that king, Jesus Christ, will rejoice. And that's what we will be doing in the next couple weeks. But the people who are not underneath that king, not a part of that kingdom, and are not under those people, it's going to be bad for them. You don't want to be a part of that. Jesus has spent so much of Scripture warning us about things and telling us about who he is that if we really, at the end of the day, cannot see it, picture Jesus crying for you. You don't want God to be sad for you for this reason. You want him to hurt because you are hurt and he wants to comfort you. You don't want Jesus to be like, if you only knew me, if you only would have allowed me to be your king, I would have given you everything. And so this is a tough message to say because it is a little depressing because we know people who will not be a part of God's kingdom. Relatives, could be your dad, could be your friend, could be your mom, could be your brother, sister. And it's going to be hard someday to be within God's kingdom and to look over his wall and to see a relative out there in pain. Whatever that means. Eternal torture, death, whatever that means. I'm not going to pretend like I know what it means because I don't. But you'll know who's a part of God's kingdom. And it's going to be agonizing to see those people who aren't. And so I say that as a warning to myself and to all of us. We need to remember who our king is. We need to remember. Remember. 